0: Well, we are in a series on the doctrine of union with Christ and how it addresses the lies of identity as put forward by Henry Nouwen. We've covered thus far, I am what I own, I am what I do, I am what people say about me, I am my worst moment, I am my best moment. And last week we did kind of an excursus, really a side trail on the related issues of idolatry, legalism, licentiousness, and how... Really the mature Christian or, or Christian maturity uh, contrasts with those things. Well, this week and next week are, I guess you could say, bonus uh, sermons. They're bonus in the sense that Nowen did not address these particular uh, <coughs> lies, but I think they fit well with what he was trying to do in his work. And this week's bonus lie, it feels funny to say that, uh, the bonus lie is, I am the captain of my soul. And it comes from the famous poem, Invictus by William Ernest Henley. Here's the poem. He writes, out of the night that covers me, black is the pit from pole to pole. I think whatever God's may be for my unconquerable soul. In the fell clutch of circumstance, I have not winced nor cried aloud. Under the bludgeonings of chance, my head is bloody but unbowed. Beyond this place of wrath and tears looms but the horror of the shade, and yet the menace of the years finds and shall find me unafraid. It matters not how straight the gate, how charged with punishments the scroll. I am the master of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. Invictus, which means uh, unconquered, is, is clearly in praise of the rugged, human spirit, or as he writes, the unconquerable soul of the person who refuses to quit or give up or bow his head despite the odds, despite how, how bad he's losing, how much pain he is uh, in, despite uh, the fact that he's losing or the charges that are held against him, despite his inevitable death even, as he says, the horror of the shade, and in turn, he's going down swinging No matter what, he's going down swinging. And all of it, if considered against reality, trades on the belief that you are a God unto yourself. And it is a a perfect example of one of the most really influential and, and widely esteemed myths of the modern age that underlies all of the lies of identity we've looked at thus far. Now, as Christians, We know better than to believe the line, I am the master of my fate, because it is, well, it's both a rejection of who God is and who he says we are, and to be the masters of our fate is by definition to try to be a God unto ourselves, and therein there is no need for the gospel or salvation because, well, we can save ourselves. Even so, in the meantime, in the time between our coming to faith, say, and our our coming death we tend to believe the last line of that poem i am the captain of my soul that is though i believe i am in relationship to god or maybe even dependent on him in some way even so my day-to-day moment-by-moment life is under my control and rests totally on me except in those circumstances of course in which i ask for help and as you can probably guess, the biblical doctrine of union with Christ, well, it sees things differently. Well, our text this morning uh, is really all of Romans chapter 8, that incredible chapter of Scripture. But just for our Scripture reading, we're going to focus on verses 1 through 11, and then as we go along, expand out from there. Romans 8, beginning with verse 1. Let's go again in Him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the gift of life that we have in your Son, that he indwells us even now through his Spirit, who has given us eyes to see and ears to hear. We pray for this time together. It's hard for us to think of this as anything other than just a bunch of individuals who happen to be sitting together, but Lord, we are one people united to you, so may this be something we do together with you in this time, and may you be glorified in it. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Christians live, really, if you think about it, between the finished work of Christ on the cross and the future redemption of our bodies in the resurrection. So in every way, our our lives are are supposed to be bookended by by Christ. So it's kind of like what you see with the Lord's Supper. We look back at what was accomplished on Calvary as the definitive justification for us, even as really at the exact same time we look forward to the great marriage feast of the Lamb when we will be fully redeemed, heart, mind, body, soul, every last atom of this body that you have right now, the entirety of your existence, when we will all be with Jesus face to face. So Jesus has our beginning and our end, but what about right now. What about our right now? Well, as we discussed last week, the New Testament does not speak of us, say, as Rob and Christ. And get the image there. Rob and Christ. So much as Rob in Christ. That, that is the image. So there is no such thing as a Christian who is not in literal union with Christ, in which that person is literally indwelled by His Spirit, And again, I can't say this strongly enough. Union with Christ is not a metaphor. It's reality. That's how the New Testament sees it, and that's what the Old Testament actually looked forward to, is the gospel. So this is not, then, being a Christian is not like the force, right, in, in Star Wars. Christ is not something you can tap into when you need help. And the Spirit is not a lifeline to God when you feel like reaching out to Him. So if you are a Christian, there, there is no you. There is no you without Christ, no matter how you may feel about it in any given moment. And like with marriage, it's not as though you have lost your identity. Lots of people fear that, that, that you have lost your identity or lost your individuality. It's rather that you are no longer merely you, but are now defined and characterized by this relationship. So as Every married couple has experienced in some way, though they are clearly two distinct people, yet the relationship is such that each person understands themselves in light of the other, even to the point that both people, despite physical distance, is never truly absent from each other. It's like how the novelist Ian Banks describes two lovers, and I got this from, again, Grant McCaskill, whose work I am completely indebted to for this this series. Ian Banks writes, you don't belong to her and she doesn't belong to you. But you're both part of each other and if she got up and left now and walked away and you never saw each other again for the rest of your lives and you lived an ordinary waking life for another 50 years, even so, on your deathbed, you would still know she was a part of you. You have left your marks on each other. You have helped to shape one another. You have Each given the other an accent on their life, which they will never quite lose no matter what. Well, if this is how it is between two humans engaged in the most intimate human relationship there is, how much more so between God and his people when Jesus literally and continually and permanently indwells them through His Spirit. For good reason, Paul teaches that marriage is a picture, it's a living symbol that points to this reality with union with Christ. Even so, though I am in covenant with my wife, I'm in marriage with my wife, I do not indwell her and I certainly do not own her as my possession. And yet the Christian claim is that God literally indwells us and in turn, unlike with marriage, we are owned by God. And it's a good thing. That's a good thing. So like with a marriage, a person does not lose his identity or individuality in Christ. No, we become more truly who we are in him. So to take Paul seriously in Romans 8, to merely be, say, Rob, to be my autonomous individual self, is actually death. It's death because it's life in the flesh. To be Rob in Christ is to be my true self, which finds its completion in God and therein has actual life. So, in contrast to the flesh, to be in the spirit is to have life precisely because you have God Himself. Now, despite this reality, Christians tend to reject this, or at the very least, we resist it. All of us here breathe the same American air and assume the same cultural beliefs, and those often unquestioned assumptions can be summarized this way. We are, each of us, individuals. We are autonomous. We all stand alone. We are not permeated by anything other than the microscopic, and we have means of dealing with that. I am my own man. Now, Jesus may be the master of my fate, and I'm happy for him to have that role. In fact, some Christians act as if they've they've contracted with him for this good or this service, as if he's, you know, life insurance for hell or something like that. Even so, between the cross and his second coming, my default position, my, my natural sinful self, is to believe I am the captain of my soul. And yet, as Paul tells us in Romans 8... That isn't the Christian way of things. That's the way of the flesh. And to be your own man, as Adam quickly found out, is the way of death. So by definition, if you are your own man, if you are the captain of your soul, then you are living for self. And in turn, you are dead to God. And if you're living for self, then no matter how nice you might be, and it's, you know, not difficult to be nice, just like it's not difficult to be superficially ethical or say not to murder your neighbors, your mind and your desires can't help but be set on the flesh. That's why as as Joe Rogan so vehemently argues, and he can't help but argue it, personal freedom and personal choice are the highest goods of American society. Don't tread on me. Don't impose your values and beliefs on me. If my desires aren't hurting anyone else, what's it to you what I do with my life? And who are you to say what is good and bad? So what undergirds and gives shape to groups as diverse as trans activists or the Koch brothers or your typical Facebook libertarian trades all on the same belief. And Christians are not immune to it. Well, beginning with verse 1 of chapter 8, Paul says this. He says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's a huge statement. That's that's the justification that comes from Christ alone. So through him, you have been declared legally innocent and pardoned of all your sins and crimes. Now, that alone is spectacular, but Paul keeps going. He writes, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. So it is not only that you are legally right. Even with his pardon, you would still have a heart set against God. Think about that. Even though you have been pardoned, you would still have a heart set against God. No, you are also now empowered by the Spirit of life. And it's precisely what Jeremiah 31 and the New Covenant look forward to. This is the entire Old Testament looks forward to what Paul is talking about. This is Jeremiah 31. For this is the covenant, this is God speaking, this is the covenant, the marriage, that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. understand the forgiveness part of God's promise in Jeremiah and rightly look to Christ in faith for that. What we miss is that in Christ, God has covenanted. He is married with us permanently. He will not divorce us or change his mind about us. And he is so committed to us that he now indwells us that we are, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians, the temple of the Holy Spirit. And in Christ, he has put his law within us, giving us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. Hearts that are not merely attuned or receptive to God, but that are no longer set against him and love him in return. This is why I try and say as often as I can in the prayer of adoration, we love you only because you first loved us. He has given us a heart of of flesh, an actual beating, real heart that loves him in return. In verse 3, Paul goes so far as to say that this, this new state of affairs, this is 8.3, really this new existence, this new creation, as he puts it in other places, means that through Christ, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. So not only did Christ die to the law for us, he put the law itself in our hearts through his spirits. So we are, we are never righteous on our own. We are never independent moral agents that can earn favor or points with God. We are not the captains of our souls. No, our righteousness is both given to us in Christ, we're forgiven, and it's worked in us through his spirit. That's sanctification. This is why those in Christ live according to the Spirit and set their minds on the Spirit. And as a matter of consequence, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ indwelling Him and does not have life with God cannot please Him. Cannot please Him. So the issue is never an issue of whether someone is good enough or not. I mean, the Bible is very clear on this. No one is good or or righteous all on their own. That person does not exist. Can they be nice Sure, but nice is really superficial. Can they be morally good? No. Modern culture is so superficially self-righteous that most people think being nice or pleasant or polite counts as evidence of a morally uncorrupted life. And again, congratulations, you didn't murder your neighbors. No, as Paul puts it, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. And in turn, is dead in their sin with mind set on flesh against God. So for good reason then, Christianity, if rightly understood, is completely offensive to the human unconquerable spirit. And it's why so many modern commentators can't help but mock what the Bible claims. And in turn, they love poems like Invictus. But closer to home, it's why the lies of identity are not merely the typical idols we struggle with, as if there is anything typical about idolatry. And though they feel natural to us, and they do, they are in truth rejections of God and our new lives, our new creation in Him. In verse 10, Paul brings out something that is really of critical importance to understanding why we find the lies of identity so seductive to begin with. He writes this, But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So there is a real felt tension to being in Christ right now in our current lives. Now, on the one hand, you are really and truly the sons of God. That is what God declares. That is is not something waiting for you. It is not something entirely in the future. No, that's you right now. That's you right now. And as an aside, Paul was not a misogynist, and he didn't hold to a backwards patriarchy when he wrote, you are the sons of God. In his culture, the people who inherited their father's wealth and name were sons, and primarily the firstborn son At that. So what Paul means here, just as baptism signifies, and like he says in Galatians 3, verses 26 through 29, that all of us, all of us have the status of firstborn sons because of Christ. That is, all of us are heirs of the promise of Abraham through Christ, male and female alike. So when he says that, this is crazy in comparison to his culture. That's why in God's kingdom there is neither male nor female, Paul says. Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. Now, that's not a denial of creaturely or social distinctions. It's the affirmation of the equality of our status in Christ. And you can't get that anywhere other than with Jesus. He's it. He's the spot. And as Jesus so clearly puts it in the book of John, because you have the Son, because you have him, you have his father too. That's why, again, living as if I am the captain of my soul is such a nonsensical thing to do. And yet, even when we can all agree to that, even when we all think it's ridiculous and can point out how the lies of identity are just dumb when you think through them, the tension we feel is real. It's real. So on the other hand, even though the power of sin no longer holds sway over us, that is, we are not defined by sin, and death. I mean, death is not our master anymore. Still, as Paul puts it, we endure with bodies that are dead. And the obvious part of this is that we endure with sickness and disease and injury, the breakdown of our bodies, death itself. But as Paul puts it in Romans 7, the body of death is also the struggle in our hearts and minds where we perpetually fight against what we know to be good and right in God's law, sometimes choosing to do it. And sometimes not. And even when we do desire to do what is good and right in God's sight, even when we agree with it and think God is right, we still struggle with it. We still struggle to do it. It's like what Paul famously says at the very end of of chapter 7, beginning with verse 21. He says, So I find to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, Even when you know it's good and right, even when you agree with it, there is a war at, at taking place in your heart and mind against you. But who saves you from this body of death? Again, it's not you fighting harder. It's Christ Jesus alone. This is why Paul highlights over the next two-thirds of Romans chapter 8 that our hope is in the resurrection of our bodies So though we we must rightly see ourselves as having eternal life right now, which you do, full heirs of the kingdom through Christ, still the battle over sin rages in our very bodies, in our hearts, in our minds, to the point that the temptation to think of ourselves as the captain of our souls, to run after self-definition, I am my truck, or whatever it may be, is ever-present and is incredibly easy to give into. And as an aside, that you have this struggle that life often feels like a war within you, that you are convicted by your failures and sin, is evidence that the Spirit is at work within you. It's why repentance is one of the most important features of the Christian life, and evidence of a life that has the Spirit in it. Those who don't have the Spirit do not agonize over these questions. They just don't. They look at us like we're crazy people. Without the spirit, for example, perhaps a person might think murder is bad, but she will absolutely be for character assassination. Perhaps then the biggest issue we face is not only that we are weak, and we don't want to accept that. I mean, after all, to think even in some small degree that we are the captains of our souls is to believe that we are somehow, at least in some small measure, strong in ourselves. But in our weakness, Parading itself as strength, as we so often do, we believe that we are not dependent on God for everything. And in turn, there is some aspect of our lives where it all rests on us. It's why all across our county, Christians routinely hear from their pastors, be better. It's why, as I've, I've tried to bring out every week in this series, legalism is rarely, if ever, the pursuit of making ourselves right in God's eyes. No, it's, it's almost always the pursuit of social capital in someone else's eyes. It's, if we actually paid attention to God, we would see just how foolish be better truly is. No, if we, if we take seriously what Paul says here, that we are weak independent creatures yet alive in the Spirit, then the illusions of legalism and the pursuit of social capital have less of a hold on us than they might otherwise have. And, and this, too, is, is not your own doing, but Christ's alone. Now, Paul brings this out in two distinct ways as we start to finish up this sermon. First, as, as Paul says in verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God so as you grow in Christ the more the reality of who you are grows within you and it's not because you have figured things out all on your own you know a person it's been my personal experience a person can study the Bible and a mountain of theological books and not grow an inch but rather It's because the Spirit is at work within you, giving you eyes to see and ears to hear, and His Word, in turn, takes deep root within you. This is why our growth, our morality, our testimonies are never a result of me solely figuring things out, but rather is the fruit of the Spirit's work within me. Even my growing response to God's leading is the work of the Spirit in my life that you may feel confident that, oh, yes, I'm a Christian. Again, that is the Spirit's work in your life. So if you've ever had a a sudden realization about God that seems so obvious but so brand new, or maybe you've had the experience of feeling a fire in your chest or in your belly during a worship service or reading God's Word or, or something like that, you didn't create that. You didn't work that out. So the pastor didn't wow you and the musicians didn't work their magic to create, you know, a setting or a mood for you to feel that. Now, to be sure, pastors are tempted to try, as are musicians. No, it was all the Spirit of Christ drawing you closer to Him. That you know, that you believe that you are a child of God is because the Spirit bears witness in your heart of hearts that it's true. Second... Prayer is perhaps when we are most alive to our participation in Christ. It's also perhaps why we are so reticent or resistant to actually praying. As Tim Keller recently said, to pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent on God for everything. Or to put it in terms of the sermon, you are the most at home and the least I am the captain of my soul when you engage in prayer. And as Paul makes clear throughout his writings, we, we, we don't pray in order to get stuff. I mean, think about Jesus' model prayer. What does he teach us to pray? No, no, no. We get more of God himself. Prayer is, of course, something we do, but again, like our works or our righteousness or our growth in faith. It is never something we do apart from Christ. And again, we tend to think of prayer as Christ and me, when it's really instead Christ in me. And of course, it can feel this way sometimes, but it is always Christ in me when we pray. Here's what Paul says in verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This might be the most staggering insight I received from McCaskill's book. I've read that verse I don't know how many times in my life. And for the first time, because of McCaskill, I saw it. Even in your prayers, you are never... Praying in your own strength. It's never you alone praying to God. No. The Spirit prays with you. Interceding for you. When you hardly know what to pray. Or how to pray. Or what you even need. There are times when I I feel led to pray. Even compelled to pray. And that comes from the Spirit's leading. That's Him pushing me. So think about that. Christ enables you to pray, giving you access to the Father. He intercedes for you through His Spirit and even leads you to pray, holding your hand as you pray and praying for you. So like the totality of our being, there is nothing about your prayer life that is not indwelled by Christ. So you can understand then why Paul builds Throughout chapter 8, with the crescendo of these confirmations that, that God is with His people and will never let them go, culminating with some of the most hopeful words in Scripture. He writes, No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. There it is. So the one who justified you has written God's law in your hearts, giving you hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. The one who conquered sin and death did it for us out of his love for us and has in turn given us his victory. The one who has put his spirit on within you has promised that one day your struggles against sin and suffering will come to an end and he will raise your body from the dead. In the meantime, he has given you his spirit to confirm to you that you indeed belong to him and are united to him right now, so much so that there is nothing you can do apart from him that not even your prayers are done in your own strength. You are not the captain of your soul. Praise God. You're not the captain of your soul. No, you are in Christ. That is who you are. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, thank you that we are not alone, that none of us here are, strictly speaking, individuals as the world thinks of it, that all of us were bought at a high price, that all of us here are temples of the Holy Spirit, that you are at work within us, that all of our good works, they are from you. All of our failures, they are paid for, that you are growing in us even now, that and even in this moment as I am speaking, you are praying with us through your Son. Thank you for this grace and this life we have been given. We pray all of this in our wonderful Savior, Jesus' name.